This morning, if you'll take your uh, bulletins and turn to the sermon outline, we will continue our series on the Holy Spirit, pages 8 and 9. Some portions of the scriptures emphasize that we do something. One thinks of the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount, which gives prescriptions for action that we should do or that we shouldn't do. There are also large sections of the scriptures which have to do with knowing something, that is, being in the possession of important knowledge that is then to change the way we live. This is one of those sections which is primarily having to do with knowing something that Paul wants us to know about the work of the Holy Spirit, and about our condition. This, of course, applies primarily to those who are believers. If you're not a Christian, the Holy Spirit is not something you yet possess. But you certainly may, by trusting in Christ and by calling on Him to be your Savior, you will possess the Holy Spirit in full measure. In the meantime, let us look together to these words from Romans chapter 8 as Paul is teaching us about the Holy Spirit. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, But you receive the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectations for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. May we pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Without it, we are in utter darkness. We have no light, no insight, no way to turn. Each one of us left to our own devices and desires, groping in the darkness. But because of your light and because of the Spirit's work in our lives to help us understand your word, we thank you that we do see this light and we do have something to follow. Help us to follow it. And this day, O Holy Spirit, in all your fullness, come. And apply these words to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we have said just briefly in our series on the Holy Spirit that everyone who's a Christian has a divine person living within the, in the middle of their lives. Someone dwells within them, and it's called the Spirit of God. And that Spirit of God is equal in power and glory with the Son and the Father, and they come and, they, and he comes and he lives within us to guide us into truth and to give us comfort and support when we need it. He does give these things in fullness to everyone who believes. So as I said before, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in the middle of your life. 
Some people doubt this because they don't always feel it or they don't feel that they're making much progress in the Christian life or they see others doing more outwardly spectacular things. They say, I must not have such a thing or if I do, it must be in really small amounts. There's no indication that anyone who's a Christian does not have the Holy Spirit in all of Scripture. Everyone who's a believer has the Holy Spirit living within them. And there's no indication that some have a whole lot more than others. Now, Paul does say it's possible to quench the Spirit, but that's an active uh, activity on our part. The ordinary Christian, so-called, the person who's just trusting in Christ, has just as much of the Holy Spirit as Billy Graham. Every Christian is given gifts, and these gifts are displayed sometimes more noticeably, as in the case of Billy Graham, sometimes less noticeably, and yet no less more spectacularly than in the case of Billy Graham. You are gifted by the Holy Spirit with abilities to serve Him and to glorify God. They may not be noticed, and in many cases not even by us are they employed. So we need to, as we said last week, we need to be thinking about and praying for the discovery and the application and the deployment of these gifts. You probably have some gifts you haven't used or even haven't discovered yet. You probably have some abilities and interests that God, the Holy Spirit, has given you that you didn't know you had. And so we are to seek and to ask that these things might flourish. Now, at the beginning of the outline, I just wanted to review very briefly about the role of the Holy Spirit in addition to what I've already said. We learn, of course, in the Scriptures that it is the Holy Spirit who calls us and enables us to believe through the Word of God. It's His work. Jesus accomplished our redemption. The Father sent the Son. They made this eternal covenant that He would come and be our Redeemer. But it is the Spirit who talks to our hearts, who calls us to Himself, and who opens our eyes to see, who takes us from, as Paul says, from death to life. This is the work of the Spirit. And He now lives in the middle of our lives, and He's not going away. He's not leaving. He's not turning to some other place. This regenerates us and begins to create a Christ-like character within us. There's an inner transformation going on. There's a, a, a final change. We have gone from death to life, but there's an ongoing change of transformation. Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians 5. The inward transformation of the Christian is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is humbling us. He is encouraging us. He is challenging us. He is causing us to trust Him. He's teaching us, not just the Scriptures themselves, but also a Christ-like conformity. He also is the one who unites us to one another inside the church so that we can serve people in life-changing ways. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings and keeps us together. That's His work. He is a unified and unifying force. He is part of the unity of the Trinity, and He has now come to us and said, we want you to come in. The sermon today can be pictured uh, graphically by, by just imagining the Trinity as a big circle, a huge circle filled with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who have said to us, we want you to come in. 
We want you to be a part of who we are. Now, I'm not saying that we become divine or in any way become equal with the Father, Son, and Spirit. But what we have is the work of the Spirit including us and calling us to be a part of the body of Christ, the work of Christ, which the Father, Son, and Spirit are all very interested in carrying out. Of all the descriptions of the Spirit, back to the outline, in the New Testament, the richest is probably the one we have in this passage, the spirit of sonship, sometimes translated as the spirit of adoption. Although it appears only once in all of the New Testament, John Calvin and other commentators have seen it as crucial in describing his work. Indeed it is. It's foundational. For he speaks of our origins, and our origins, of course, precede what follows. And the origin, he says, is in the Spirit. Verse 15, you did not receive the Holy Spirit as a spirit of bondage, but as the spirit of adoption. And we'll look at what that means. Also in Galatians 4, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now I said I wanted, this sermon is particularly about what you need to know, but Always woven in with what we need to know sometimes is woven what we need to do. And in verse 13 we read, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. If you are called to be a part of God's family, there are many positive things that go with that. But there are some negatives too. And the first one is here in verse 13. God's children are to manifest this family trait. Holiness. Holiness. We can't do perfection, but we can move in that direction. We are to be moving into the direction of purity at all times. Putting to death sin through the power of the indwelling spirit. One of the spirit's works is to drive out Satan and to defeat the power of the old man, the old nature, and the sin nature that dwells and rise within us. So there really is a struggle going on, and you feel it from time to time, between doing what's right and what's wrong. You feel the tension and the conflict as you have on the one hand what you know to be true and what you know to be right, and on the other hand, the desire or aspiration of your heart. This happens to all of us. It's because we're not yet perfect. We're not yet transformed into his likeness in every way. We're not yet glorified in the presence of God forevermore. And one of the nice things about heaven, one of the great things about heaven, is that that struggle is over. You no longer have to wrestle with right and wrong and doing and obeying in a world where you are pulled inwardly and outwardly in the wrong direction. One of the glories of heaven is that that struggle ceases and goes away We no longer have to wrestle and fight and pray. But there are obligations if you have the Holy Spirit within you. And verse 13 mentions them. If you live according to the sinful nature, then you will die. You you will ruin yourself. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So the Spirit is a resource to put to death the misdeeds of the body. It's something upon which we can call and ask. We're not just set adrift in a boat and said, okay, survive on your own. We are given the fullness of the Godhead to help us. The Holy Spirit himself to to help us to put to death the misdeeds of the body. 
you're like me, you don't call upon him enough. You don't ask enough for his help and strength. We try to do it ourselves. And then we don't get very far. Because we're weak in the same ways. If we call upon him to help, what often happens is he not only works within us, but he sends someone to come alongside of us to be our friend and to help us. This week, these weeks during Gail's illness, she hasn't been able to walk around. Not illness, I should say, or injury. And your coming alongside of her has lightened the load of her confinement. The Spirit has worked in the midst of those who have visited her and sent cards and phone calls and all the rest of food. All those things have come alongside of her and have lightened the load. Not just has the Spirit worked within her, but the Spirit has worked within and through you, through the body of Christ, to support and sustain her. And that's how it works. The Holy Spirit brings us into a family, as we shall see, and being brought into that family means we have new resources, people who have ideas and strength and gifts and abilities that we don't have. So we're not called upon to just live the Christian life ourselves. We're called upon to trust and rely upon the resources of the Holy Spirit. And if we don't do that, then we are the poorer for it. If we only live off of our paycheck and don't sometimes tap our savings, go to our savings, then we are sometimes squeezed. In the same way, we cannot in our own strength move forward in the Christian life without acknowledging dependence on the Holy Spirit. Working in us and through other people and through his word to build us up. But he says, verse 14, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now he begins a description that he wants us to know. Here again, we don't always feel like sons of God. We feel quite alienated from him. We are very acquainted with our sin and we see our limitations. And everything we think about God is greater than this, is more powerful and more extensive. And we're nowhere near like that. And yet he says, for you, because you are, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And I've listed here some of the benefits that are in this passage for those who are Christians that we need to be aware of on the behalf of the Holy Spirit. First of all, security. There is no need to become a slave again to fear. Fear usually results from a threat, a challenge, a concern. It enslaves us. You have known people, as I have, who almost can't go outside their home or their apartment because they're so afraid of what might happen to them. To a lesser extent, it affects all of us. What could happen to our children, our grandchildren, our parents, our beloved mothers this Mother's Day, 
What could happen? What could happen? What could happen? And we try to build what we can against what could happen. But in so doing, we become enslaved to fear. The Spirit comes in and says, you don't need to worry. Those things indeed may happen. It is a dangerous world. There is disease. There is illness. There is injury. There are, there are divorces. There are problems of every kind. But as you are believers, he says, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Security comes as a result of knowing that you are in the family. You belong to him. And that spirit has been placed within you. We now have all the resources of heaven to help us. Also, secondly, we have authority. Slaves have no authority. But heirs do. And as a new child of God, this new status brings spiritual authority. So that you can pray. Jesus said, you may ask for anything in my name, according to my will, and I will give it to you. You may come immediately into the throne room of grace with your requests. You have access. You don't need to go through protocols. You don't have to wait outside for half an hour or an hour to see the great Oz, the great and powerful Oz. You can just go right in. You can just come right in. Anytime. Anywhere. And come in as a beloved son. Through the finished work of Christ, you now have access. You have a pass right on into the throne room. You can come right on in with whatever what your requests are. There's this famous picture, of course, back in the Kennedy administration of President Kennedy in his office working away at his desk. And there's John John, his son, running underneath the desk, perfectly at peace, both of them, not worried about the cares of the world is the little one, or maybe less so of the big one because his son is nearby. In the same way, Christians have access to their spiritual parent. We are now sons, and we now have authority as his heirs, as we'll see in a moment. We have his, as his heirs, we are now in the family. We are now in. And that means not just external security and authority, but it means something even more precious. It means also intimacy. This is a term implying loving and trusting familiarity with the Father. And it says in verse 5, You have received the spirit of sonship, and by him you cry, Abba, Father. Now this phrase is one that Jesus used, Abba. It occurs elsewhere in the New Testament. We see it in Galatians 4. And now here. The best translation in this day that most people have agreed to is daddy. Intimacy, like that term implies. Dad, pops, listen. We have received the spirit of sonship and because of this and by him we can now cry about anything. To someone who has time for us. To someone who knows us and our situation. To someone who cares that our concerns are addressed. To someone who wants to hear from us. 
And it is the Spirit who enables it to happen. He brokers it. He brings them together. The Father and we, his children, adopted into his family, are brokered and connected by the Spirit, who says, see, he has us meet, and we are then able to give our requests. So the Spirit arranges security that we might no longer be fearful. He gives us authority as sons and heirs. He gives us intimacy to a heavenly Father who cares about us. And he gives us assurance. He gives us the confirmation that we are truly in the family. A sense of that, a sense that he really loves me. Verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Nothing replaces this. This is the special possession of the Christian, that you would have the assurance that no matter what, you are important to him. We receive messages all the time, and many of those messages are messages of disapproval, conflict, and rejection. Many times from our own earthly parents. But the Bible here clearly says that it is the Spirit's work to testify with our hearts that we are God's children. We sing the old song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the Bible does say that he loves us. But that's not all we have to go on. It's not just the testimony in word. It's also the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. And this is conclusive. We don't always have it. Sometimes it comes and goes because of fear or sin or other factors. But if you've ever even once felt the presence of the Lord in your heart, you've known the dearest thing on earth. John Wesley, when he was converted back in the 18th century, spoke of the evening, though he had been in church all his life, when he went into a small chapel in Aldersgate and found his heart strangely warmed. Not a feeling that he could produce or that the minister could manufacture or we would sell it like crazy. It's a unique thing that only the Spirit can do. And you've had it happen if you're a Christian. It's been a witness to your heart that not only is the Bible true, but there's something going on in here. It's the assurance of the Holy Spirit. And he, as our comforter, or paraclete, He is the one who comes alongside of us. This is one of his preeminent works to to, to give you certainty that he exists and he's at work in you. Sometimes it's been the tug on your heart of something you know you should do. Other times it's been the conviction of sin of something you know you shouldn't do. And other times it's been just the comfort of knowing that I'm in I belong to him, even though I don't deserve it. We feel it sometimes during the singing of hymns or in the quietness of our prayer life. It comes and goes. We can't manufacture it and conjure it up or we would have it all the time. But it's there. And it reminds us of his promise to never leave us nor forsake us. So we have security, we have authority, we have intimacy, we have assurance, we also have Inheritance. Verse 17, now if we are children, that is children of God, then we are heirs. 
heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now this is perhaps the most spectacular and practical one of all the ones I could mention. Because it's so often overlooked and underappreciated. The inheritance that came to Jesus as a result of the cross, the inheritance which he used then to distribute among us spiritual gifts, as we saw last week in Ephesians 4, this inheritance is something that we share in. The problem is we can't see it yet. We don't see the value of it yet. But it's a good illustration. If you are named in someone else's will this morning, you haven't come into it if they're still living. You have an inheritance. It's yours. But it's in somebody else's name right now, and you can't yet fully inherit it until the death of the one for who possesses it. Well, we have the death of the one who possesses it. Jesus has finished his work. He's died and risen again. Therefore, his inheritance is in force. And the inheritance that is in force is so vast and so rich that all of eternity will not be able to expend it. Huge. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, when they die, whew, man, billions and billions and billions of dollars. Nothing compared to this. It'll go a long way, especially compared to what we have, but nothing like this. For it says, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs not of Bill Gates or of of, of Warren Buffett. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So we share in a real inheritance. Just as real as the cross of Christ, we have an eternal reward. And the Spirit would want us to understand this. That gives us a forward perspective. It keeps us from being mired in the limitations of our own lives and sin. And pushes us forward and gives us hope. A word to which we will come often in connection with the Holy Spirit in this series. Hope. He not just only indwells us now and gives us security and assurance, but he gives us a future hope upon which we may rely. Now, you may say, if you were named in Warren Buffett's will or Bill Gates' will, well, maybe they'll change their mind before they die. Or maybe some relative will swindle me out of it. And maybe I won't get that inheritance, although it's written. But that can't happen here. The, word, the inheritance here is the inheritance of God, and we are a co-heir with Christ. So as we are brought into the family, we have a glorious, glorious future guaranteed. Unless the whole Bible is wrong, unless Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, unless all of that is, is wrong, if, the, if, if it's right, then there's nothing that can take it away. It's guaranteed. And each one of us will be just as rich as we could imagine in the life to come. No inward conflict. No outward bills to pay. No wrestlings with a past that we can't fix. But a beautiful and glorious future that is our possession. Shared together and with Christ with whom we are co-heirs.
Well, this is enough, but it goes on. Discipline also we receive. Loving fathers always discipline their children. This is a painful privilege to be put through, but the sufferings uh, are put through us to us by the most loving father in the universe. And indeed, he does say, lest we think that this is all gravy, lest we think that he's just a big candy man in the sky, and he's only uh, easy, we are reminded that we are called also to share in his suffering, being misunderstood, being rejected, being hated and reviled, Saul hated the church. And he gathered men around him, maybe women too, and they persecuted the church. And they were happy when Stephen was stoned. And they were looking to do more of it everywhere they could. They hated it. And people hate Christians today. Persecuted church around the world bears up under these burdens. But we, so we are called, and let us be reminded that we are called, to share in his sufferings. Christian life is, in this life, not a perfect life. And many times I know I expect too much from it. And I am too often disappointed when things don't go as I had hoped or wished or desired. But if I would read the Bible more carefully, I would realize that I should lower my expectations of this world and increase them for the one to come. Lower my expectations of what I'm going to receive here and increase them of my hope and glory. And so we have the loving discipline of the Father who brings suffering and trial into our lives because he loves us. Some human fathers abuse their children. And all of us are imperfect as we seek to raise them and discipline them. But this father is a loving and gracious and wise and just one who only disciplines out of love but doesn't fail to discipline. And so we should take a little different attitude toward the sufferings that we may encounter unless they are for our own foolishness sake. You will be misunderstood. Jesus was. You will have people reject the word of God and reject you if you believe in Christ. And God will use some of the sufferings of Christ for this, in our lives in ways that I can't describe or understand. But finally, we notice that we do share in his sufferings. This brings a, fi- a family likeness. Christians will suffer not only in the pains of this world that all people face, but specifically because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. As we live for him and as we speak of him, we will suffer too. Family likeness. The Godfather was on the other day. I was watching it, the movie, you know. And their attorney who's been with them from the beginning, Tom, comes a point, I think it's in the, in the second movie. Michael is sitting there. He looks over at him. He says, you're out, Tom. Tom says, what do you mean I'm out? You're out. What did I do? doesn't matter. You're out, Tom. He continues to protest. He continues to be rejected. He, a close advisor. 
a friend of the family for years, a man who really knew too much about the goings-on of the mafia. He's out. I don't know why. It's not really clear what happened, but he's out. That won't happen. That will not happen. You're in if you're a Christian. There will not be a day when he says, "Uh uh-uh, sorry, not quite good enough, changed my mind, you blew it. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I don't think I fully grasp this, and I don't think you do either. You are in if you're a Christian. The Spirit is not only in you, but you are in the family, and that's it. That is all that can be said about the matter. No one's going to say to you someday, you're out, Tom. You're out. No one's going to say that, at least of all the son. And if someone accuses you, or your own heart accuses you of unworthiness, the son will step to the front and he will say, I am his advocate. Wait a minute, I paid for him. You're not going to get him out. I I say he's in. That's the whole meaning of this passage in Romans 8. Paul wants us to grasp it because he has just been saying in Romans 7 that I don't do what I want to do and 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 the things I do I don't want to do. And he's he's wrestling with the old nature and the old man and so he he feels under threat and under condemnation and under some kind of jeopardy. But Romans 8 says, no, you're in. You're in. And you've got my blood on it You're in a co-heir with me, and my work is finished. Satan can't go back and undo what I did. No one can undo what I did. Neither heaven nor earth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not even angels or principalities or powers. These are things that we must know. See, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm not asking you to... Keep any law. I'm asking you to grasp, to know, to accommodate these deep and rich truths that are laid for us, set forth for us in Romans 8. So further and final application. The Spirit points always to the Son and the Father. He's always steps back, you know, and goes like this. It's, it's, their, it's their party. It's, it's their doing. It's the Father and the Son. The Spirit is always reticent, quiet, peaceful. But to draw the conclusion from this that we should not focus our attention on the Spirit at all or not grow in knowledge of Him is a big mistake. We are to glorify Him together with the Son and the Father by letting Him work within us to shape us in a way that pleases the whole Trinity. Let Him work in you. He loves you. He's not a stern taskmaster who is only interested in you making a certain number so that he can look good. He's interested in you and your benefit and your welfare for all eternity. He wants to be your friend now and forever. Secondly, you can't face the sufferings and the groanings of this life without certainty about your future. You can't be certain about your future unless you know that Jesus died for you and went through that for you. And even though you fail and you don't live the life that you ought to live and your faith is imperfect, your repentance, even your repentance needs to be repented of, God is there for you, for me. 
The Spirit is there for you. He will not abandon you. A couple weeks ago I said there are certain key fundamental teachings of the Scriptures that must sink in. That week we talked about the fact that Paul writes, you are not your own, you've been bought with a price, so you can't run your own life. You have to submit to the one who paid for you. You're a slave to him in, in, in that respect. Secondly, this morning, a fundamental faith uh, fact is that he will never leave you nor forsake you. No, no, no. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. All you've got to do is read a few more verses and you'll see those exact words in Romans 8, and 28, 29, 30 and following. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, and that is because the Holy Spirit lives and works within us, and he can't be separated from the rest of the Trinity. He will for all eternity bring us into that circle and make us a part of the family. Although we are adopted, we come to our final point. You have new brothers and sisters who once were strangers. Now you're brought into a family and you are adopted into a family of strangers. People you didn't grow up with, people you don't know, people that are not normally like you in every way, don't have the family resemblance except on the inside. And so we have been enriched today just to think of what he's done for us. All we have to do, really, there's no, there's no bottom line here of what we must do. We just simply must take this in and appreciate it. Rejoice in it. It's good news. The effect of Christ and his work has come to practical application in the work of the Spirit coming and dwelling within us in a glorious way. And God has blessed us as a result. So be thankful for the security that you have, for the authority you've been given, for the intimacy you possess with the Father, for the assurance that is ours as a result of the finished work of Christ, for the inheritance that is certain laid up for us in heaven, where no moth can destroy or thief can break in and steal, for the discipline of God working in our lives when we don't like it but we know we need it, and for the family likeness of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Let us pray. Drive these points home to us, we ask, O Lord. Make them real and true. Thank you that they are true. And if there are any this morning who haven't taken Christ as their Savior here this day, May they then receive the Holy Spirit by saying, Yes, Lord, and have all of the avalanche of heaven fall upon them of grace and mercy and eternal life. And all the glories of the gospel become real to their hearts as they reach out in faith to you and as you work the gift of faith in their lives. Thank you, O Holy Spirit, for being so generous to us. Forgive us for not appropriating such wonderful generosity in the past. Please transform our thinking, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.